0: Father, we worship you this morning. We thank you for your amazing love. Jesus, my King. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my King, would die for me? We thank you. We worship you. We praise you this morning. Amen. Now, a recommendation, a further recommendation about books. Just don't ever lend Lucy a book or a CD because if you ever see it back, it will come back, from a different shop to the one that you bought it from because she's lost yours or your CDs will end up in the charity shop. Which has also happened to me. Another tip with books is, um, Keith mentioned the Glow Bookshop website and also um, uh, the Good Book Company. If you buy from that phenomenal big website that sells everything and sells everything cheaper than everybody else, uh, Amazon, and often they are much cheaper often than Christian bookshops can even sell. That's because Amazon undercut them massively and the Christian bookshops can't sell them that much. But if you go on the Glow bookshop uh, website, at the bottom, if you scroll down, there is a link to Amazon. And if you click on that, it takes you to Amazon. And then anything you buy on Amazon, Amazon pay Glow. It's only a couple of pennies, but every purchase, whatever you buy on Amazon, if you do it through that link, Glow, uh, Glow get paid a few pennies. And that goes to pay for mission tracks and literature on gl- summer teams and all that kind of stuff. So... By all means, buy from Amazon, but at the very least, try and do it through the Glow website. That would make some money for mission for the Lord. Let's just quiet our hearts, shall we, and just, just bow our heads for a moment and just, uh, just, just silence ourselves before God, as we, before we approach his word together this morning. Let's just, uh, I just ask God that God would speak to each one of us. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to your word which is living and active and sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing right to the very heart of us. And we pray that as we humble ourselves under your word that you would speak to us, that we would meet with you and encounter you through your living word this morning. we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, throughout history, Christians have tended to do one of two things. Lucy mentioned in the book she reviewed how Christians often focus on a good thing, get kind of sidetracked a little bit, and this is true in what I'm talking about this morning. Throughout history, Christians have either tended to do one of two things. Either they've withdrawn from the world around them and lived isolated lives because they can't cope with sin and evil, and it upsets them, and it offends them, and so they kind of withdraw from the world because they can't handle it, and the, the extreme of that is the sort of monk in the monastery up on the hillside However, in withdrawing from the world, they lose contact with the world and become basically irrelevant and unable to, to contact people and, and, and share the gospel. Or the other extreme is that they've compromised their beliefs and have embraced the world around them, have ignored sin and evil, and even sometimes are approving and endorsing sin and evil, and in so doing behave and look no different to the people next door or the people in their office or wherever it is. And they too become irrelevant. To the world, because they look no different to the world. They've been compromised, and they have nothing really to say into the world around them and into people's lives. They're the, the two extremes that Christians can so easily fall into, and all of us will find ourselves leaning and being drawn in one of those directions all the time. We will, we will never be exactly where we should be. We'll always be kind of being drawn one way or the other. That is inevitable. However, the biblical position is for Christians, followers of Jesus, to stay in the world so as to engage as much as possible with the people all around them, with non-Christians who don't know Jesus all around them, but at the same time to remain utterly different to the world. Now that's really difficult, to remain engaged right at the heart of the life of this world and yet be completely different to the world around it. To be in the world, but not to be of the world. To spend time with non-Christians, to be engaged right at the heart of life, but to live very differently from them. So that as we're right there in the thick of it, we make our presence felt. People know who we are. People know whose we are, who we belong to. And then we're able to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, right into the middle of that context and into the middle of that lost world. Now that is one of the hardest things to do, to stay right in the center of of the world around us and yet be different and yet not be compromised. And always we're either drawn one way or the other, and and that's the challenge is to stay engaged and not to withdraw and equally, as we stay engaged, not to become compromised. Now today we're continuing our studies in the life of Abraham in Genesis 19. And the focus in Genesis 19 shifts away a little bit from Abraham to his nephew Lot, who is living down uh, in the plain below where Abraham is living, and he's, in, he's living in this town or this, this uh, small city called Sodom. It wouldn't be a city in the way that we think of it, it would be a kind of small fortified town. And two weeks ago, we saw how God revealed to Abraham that he was going to bring judgment upon Sodom and the other surrounding towns. And two angels who'd been talking with Abraham went down to Sodom principally to rescue Lot and his family from the impending judgment that God had said was going to happen. And I want us to see this morning that as we read Genesis 19 in a moment, that it actually has a huge amount to say to us about life in 21st century Britain. Not withdrawing from the world around us, but also not embracing the sin that surrounds us so that we can engage with this world, so that we can present the gospel, the good news that, that, that Jesus has come. That though God is going to judge this world and he's going to punish this world and he's going to punish sin, he has also offered a way of escape. He's, he's provided a way of escape through his wonderful son, the Lord Jesus. And so we need to stay right at the heart of society, right at the heart of life as much as is possible and yet not, be compromised by the world around us and its values and standards so that we can present this fantastic good news. So let's read Genesis 19, 1-29 with that in mind. Genesis 19, 1-29. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went, outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said no my friends don't do this wicked thing look I have two daughters who have never slept with a man let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them but don't do anything to these men for they've come under the protection of my roof get out of our way they replied and they said this fellow came here as an alien as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge we'll treat you worse than them they kept bringing pressure on lot and moved forward to break down the door But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought him out, As soon as he brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favour in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoah. By the time Lot reached Zoah, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe, that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Well, that is some account, isn't it? a part of the Bible that we would probably really rather not read, not have to look at, not have to kind of engage with. Some of us might even wish it wasn't there. It it doesn't make for particularly pleasant or comfortable reading, but it is there. And we need to study the Bible in its entirety, not just the bits we like. And we need to preach the Bible in its entirety, the whole counsel of God, not just the bits that we're comfortable with or the bits that other people might like to hear. This, This passage is deeply uncomfortable and difficult to read and and difficult culturally for us in 21st century Britain. Yet I do believe it's massively important to us today and hugely important to study and to grasp what's going on and what isn't going on as well. The towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, particularly the name Sodom, have become a a byword over the centuries in Jewish and Christian circles for evil and depravity. And, And that's not surprising because the Bible describes them in that way. In the, in the bleakest of terms. Way back in Genesis 13, and, and all the verses we're going to look at are on an outline. You've got the outline on your chair if you want to use that. And the verses will be up on the screen. But way back in Genesis 13, we read this, that the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The very first description of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, the very first description describes them as sinning greatly, as being wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. And when we get to Genesis 18, just a little bit further on, God says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. So there's clearly some pretty heavy stuff, some, some bad stuff going on in these towns, in, these, in this region. And God is poised to say enough and to destroy the, the town and everybody that's living in it and the, and the, the surrounding towns, except for Lot and his family. And so when we get to verses uh, 4 and 5 of Genesis 19, and the angels had been taken in by Lot. They appeared as men, but they were angels, we read. They'd been taken in by Lot uh, to have shelter and to spend the night at his house. We read these words. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Whoa, some pretty heavy stuff, isn't it, right there. This is an attempted male gang rape. The men of the city don't realize that these angels are our angels. They think they're men. And they demand that Lot hands them over to them so that they can do what they want with them. And it's this attempted sin of, of male gang rape that Sodom and Gomorrah have been infamous for throughout the centuries, that the kind of bywords for it. The extreme headline act that we read of is this male gang rape or, or attempted male gang rape but it's actually set in the wider context of ongoing homosexual sin and ongoing general sexual sin. Jude, a lot further on in in time, in the New Testament, writes this. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now, the first sin that Jude focuses on here is what he calls sexual immorality. It's the Greek word ponia. And the Greek word means all sexual activity outside of marriage of a man and a woman. That's what the Greek word porneia means. It means any sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman. That's what sexual immorality, whenever you read it in the New Testament, it will almost certainly be translated from that word. And then Jude mentions what the NIV translates as perversion. Different translations use different words. But in the Greek, it literally means to go after other flesh. For It literally means, in other words, men having sex with men. Peter, writing in the New Testament, says this, God rescued a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And the Greek words here that are translated as filthy and lawless are all about describing people who have sex lives that have no restraint and are outside God's laws, outside God's boundaries. But it wasn't just homosexual actions, and nor was it just wider general sexual immorality. If we look at Ezekiel 16, we read these words. And in Ezekiel 16, God is rebuking the people of Jerusalem. This is some centuries later. And he's comparing them to Sodom. And this is what he says. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. So Ezekiel refers to the sexual sin. That's what the detestable things are. That's what the Hebrew word means. But he also highlights arrogance and greed and a lack of concern and care for the poor and needy, social injustice. And people have, throughout history, have often referred to Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of homosexuality, but we can see that from these passages, the, the so-called sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was much wider than that. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I've, and I've put this on your outline for you, included arrogance, it included greed, it included social injustice, inhospitality, and sexual immorality, including homosexual acts. So I think it's it's very unhelpful to refer to Sodom and Gomorrah as a commentary on homosexuality. That's not what it is. The main homosexual activity that's actually described is actually an attempt to gang rape. So it's quite an extreme thing rather than general homosexual practice. However, the fact that the men of the town were attempting this suggests strongly, I think, that general homosexual activity was also commonplace. And the other verses show us that this is set in the wider context of general sexual morality. Genesis 19 chooses to record an extreme situation to demonstrate just how depraved the town was in every other way. Now, I don't have time this morning to deal with the issue of homosexuality in any depth because Genesis 19, I don't think, is a commentary on that. However, what I do want to say is this, that the Bible is completely and utterly clear that all sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman is sinful. The Bible is completely and utterly clear on that. And that includes homosexual acts. So, are homosexual acts sinful? Yes, according to the Bible. To have homosexual feelings and desires is not a sin. The sin takes place when a person acts on those feelings. Now, if you want to know more about the whole issue of, of, of homosexuality then. I'm more than happy to give you a paper I wrote uh, last year when I was on sabbatical. That's what I did. I spent three months studying this subject. Uh, I've got a paper. It's 28,000 words long, so it's not exactly a light read. But if you want to borrow that or, or to, if you can't sleep one night and you want to get to sleep, then I commend it to the house. But on a serious note, if you do want to, to, to engage with me on this issue, I'd be delighted to chat with you. And certainly for you to read my paper. It's, it's just my paper. It's and, I've got lots of books on the subject as well. But next year in the spring, what we're looking to do is to have probably maybe one, two or three Sunday nights uh, where I will talk through this whole subject and we'll do some question and answer as well. And that'll be perhaps in the spring next year um, to to really get into this. I realize it's a big issue and a a very uh, topic that's that's prevalent in, in culture at the minute. And we do need to explore it. But... Genesis 19 isn't a commentary on that, and so that's all I'm going to say on it this morning. So yes, homosexual acts were clearly prevalent in Sodom and Gomorrah, but so was more general sexual immorality, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, and adultery, and perhaps all sorts of other things as well. But in addition to the sexual sins, the people of Sodom were guilty of arrogance, they were guilty of greed, social injustice, inhospitality, and probably many other sins as well. And because these sins had reached such a depth and such a volume, God decided that enough was enough and he wouldn't tolerate what was happening there anymore. Jude, writing in the New Testament, says that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So God chose to give the people of Sodom and Gomorrah what they deserved, partly to demonstrate his justice and partly to demonstrate... uh, really as a kind of example of what all will face who reject God and reject God's ways in in, and through eternity. So this is a warning to us today that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is a warning to us and to the world today of the eternal fire that awaits those who reject Jesus and reject God. But God would be totally justified in destroying every person alive then, not just the people of those cities and every person alive today because we all sin and all sin is repugnant to God we all sin and all sin is repugnant to God and God would not be God if he didn't deal with sin God wouldn't be true to himself if he didn't hate sin with the deepest intense most intense passion we could possibly imagine and as we read Genesis 19 maybe this morning you reacted by thinking whoa was that really necessary to, to, to punish and kill everybody in that city? Was that really necessary? That's certainly kind of my default as I read that. Oh, seems a little bit over the top, doesn't it? Surely they didn't deserve it. Surely they weren't any worse than, than other people or, or just people today. And, and they're legitimate questions. Because I and you, we are no more deserving of God's forgiveness and of eternal life than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. The only reason that I am still alive, never mind have eternal life, the only reason I'm still alive right now is because of God's grace, God's common grace, just allowing me to continue to live. God will be totally and utterly justified in, in, in destroying me right now because of, because of sin. Now that's not unfair. The fact that, 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 that God did this is not unfair because everyone deserves God's wrath uh, because of their sin. God isn't unfair or unjust in punishing some people for their sin. He's just doing what is right. If you imagine 10 people rob a bank and and they're arrested and they're tried and they're condemned and they're found guilty and they're they're sentenced to life imprisonment. And then if the judge chooses to set two of those uh, prisoners free, he's not being unfair to the eight who still go to prison. They're receiving what they deserve. End of story, no question. Justice is served. He's just being incredibly gracious and generous in setting the two men free. So those who go to prison get what they deserve. The ones who get set free receive grace. And that's what God does to those of us who've trusted in him. And in God's case, when he chooses not to punish us and chooses instead to give us eternal life, justice has still been done. God's character, his hatred of sin, has still been satisfied because of Jesus. Because Jesus on the cross dealt with that sin. So the fact that my sins have been forgiven doesn't mean that justice hasn't been done and I've got away with it. I've been set free because Jesus took the justice. Jesus bore the wrath. Jesus paid the penalty. So justice is always done. But we also struggle with passages like Genesis 19 because we just don't understand how holy and perfect and righteous God is and how utterly opposed He is to sin. We just don't. We just don't grasp. We're incapable of this side of heaven of really grasping who God is and his, his holiness, His utter purity and His utter disgust at sin. And we need to learn, write this down, we need to learn to view sin the same way God does. We need to learn to view sin the way that God views sin. When we find ourselves thinking that sin is no big deal, then it's because we've fallen into this trap, we talked about earlier, of, of drifting away from God and being influenced by the world that we live in when we find ourselves as i sometimes do saying to myself about sins uh, about some sins for instance well surely it's not that big a deal i mean you know no one's getting hurt are they you know it's 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 fine isn't it really you know no one's getting hurt by this then actually what we're doing we've done when we say that and when we think that is we've embraced the world and we've drifted from god's standard because when for instance we see sin only in terms of whether there's anybody getting hurt or not, then we've utterly missed the point of what sin really is. Yes, sin does damage and hurt other human beings and, and, and that's something we shouldn't do. But sin primarily and ultimately is about being an offence to God. When I sin, I first and foremost sin against God long before anybody else who happens to be the kind of object or on the receiving end of my sin. That's a secondary issue. That's, that's wrong and it needs dealing with. But... First and foremost, and before anything else, my sin is about me sinning against God. And we need to grasp that when we see sin and when we sin. And God hates and he detests sin with a passion that we cannot even begin to understand. That's one of the reasons why Jesus says that when a man lusts in his heart, he's committed adultery. Sometimes people say, it's okay to look as long as I don't touch. I can do a bit of window shopping. No, we can't. We can't look. We can't touch, but we can't look either because it's sin. And when we rationalize sin in that way, we completely and utterly miss the point. If I lust in my heart, yes, it's true, no one else knows and no one else gets hurt, but God knows and God hates it when I sin and God hates it when I lust. So we need to learn to view sin the same way that God views sin. If we think sin's fine or not that big a deal, or no one's getting hurt, so what's the problem? Then we've utterly missed the point of what sin really is and we've utterly missed the point or the truth of who God is. So we need to learn to view sin the way that God does and that's the challenge of living in the midst of an utterly sinful world just like Lot did. So how do we learn to view sin like God does? How do we do that? Or or how do we get closer to, to looking at sin the way that God does? How do we live in the middle of an utterly sinful world and not embrace the values and the standards of the world around us. I think one of the key ways that we do this is found in Romans 12 verse 2. Paul says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't live the way that this world lives, Paul says, but be transformed. How? By renewing our minds. We have to make that daily choice not to conform to the pattern of this world, to the values, the standards, the behaviour of this world. And the way we do that, Paul says here, is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But how do we do that? How do we renew our minds? Well, I think the primary way we do that is by washing and feeding our minds with the Word of God, with the Bible, with the truths of the Bible, so that our minds are being renewed on a daily, on a regular basis with what is right and what is true. So we're feeding, we're washing our minds with good stuff, with truth, with God's truth. If I choose to fill my mind with sinful stuff on TV, now I'm not saying we shouldn't watch TV, and I'm not saying we should run away from from the world. I've already said that. And just the very nature of life means that we, we're going to see sin all around us. We can't just switch off and go and live in a monastery. God doesn't want that at all. He wants us right here embracing and engaging life. But if I'm choosing to fill my mind with sinful stuff on TV, for instance, in, in, in movies, in, in TV shows, in music, in, in books, then I'm going to find myself conforming to the pattern of this world. It's inevitable. If I put stuff, bad stuff in, bad stuff's going to come out. And if we don't think we can watch sin, sin on TV or in movies or, or, in, or listen to, to songs that are full of sin or, or books, if we, don't, if we think we can do that, and not be affected we are being utterly deceived we we are being utterly deceived if we think we can watch sin and remain untarnished or unaffected by that we have to make that daily choice to fill our minds instead with the truths of the Bible to wash our minds to feed our minds with the truths of the Bible so that when for instance and, and, and with for instance songs that are about Jesus rather than about sex there's loads of great songs that you listen to on the radio or on CD or whatever, and and they're great to sing along to, but actually when you examine them, a lot of it is at best dodgy and at worst utterly sinful. And when we sing and choose to fill our minds perhaps with songs about Jesus rather than songs about sex, or we watch stuff on the TV that is wholesome, and and when we're feeding our souls with, with God's word, then our minds will be renewed on a daily basis. And we need to make this choice every day to renew our minds. And if we spend time regularly with God in prayer and just on that kind of regular basis, daily basis, saying, God, please show me where my life is kind of drifting in ways I'm not even realising yet. I don't know about you, that happens to me. I, I kind of find myself, and over weeks and months, you're know, you, you you're not going in that straight line and it's just a tiny deviation and then sort of weeks down the road you realise, goodness, I'm actually, I've drifted a long way from God's viewpoint on this issue. And I need to correct that and bring it back. And that can happen in all sorts of different areas of life. And so on that daily uh, daily basis, God, please, Holy Spirit, please show me today where have I been deceived by the world around me, by its values and systems, and, and where is Satan deceiving me so that I don't even realize that I've begun to think in a way and behave in a way and speak in a way and act in a way that is incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. And when we do that, when we're daily feeding ourselves with, with the truths of God's Word, and when we're, and we're praying and, and, and genuinely and honestly engaging with God in this way, then we will find ourselves increasingly viewing sin the way that God views sin, rather than the way that the world sees sin. Now, we're never going to be completely like God, but this is, a, this is about a, uh, an orientation. When we increasingly spend time with God in prayer, and when we increasingly are feeding ourselves and and washing our hearts and our minds with the Word of God, then that will help us to see sin the way that God sees sin, rather than the way that this world sees sin. But there's a trap that we can fall into here. As, As we spend more time with God in prayer and in the Bible, we will find ourselves rightly hating, and we should hate the values and the behavior and the standards of the world around us. If we don't hate it, then there is something wrong with us. We're not where we should be. We should hate sin. Because God hates sin. Sin caused Jesus to be put to death. That's how serious sin is. And any time we devalue sin or think it's no big deal, remember it was, it was sin that caused Jesus to be nailed to the cross. Your sin, my sin. And so the more time we read in the Bible and the more we're praying, we're going to find ourselves moving more closer to God, to that center ground of being close to God and therefore rightly hating the values and the standards and the behavior of the world around us. But the temptation then can be to fall into a trap to then withdraw from the world because I just don't like this. I just don't like hearing this or seeing this. So I cut myself off from the world. I cut myself off from non-Christians. And I have little or no contact with the world around me because it just is so much nicer and easier if I don't do that. But that's not what God wants either. And that's a trap that we can fall into. Lot found himself living in the middle of a town which was utterly depraved, utterly sinful, and no really di- not really any different, is it, to, to any city in the UK in 21st century Britain. No different to to living in Newcastle in the 21st century. Lot had to struggle, just as we do, with this tension of being surrounded by sin but not accepting or embracing the sin. Jesus touched on this when he prayed for the disciples. He He said this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus doesn't want us running away from the world and reality. But he does want us to recognize that we are not of this world. And he prays here that God would sanctify us by the truth of the Bible, by his word, by the truth of his word. And to sanctify simply means to set apart as holy for God's service. We're meant to live in the middle of a world that is utterly sinful, but we're meant to be sanctified to be set apart from sin and devoted to God. So living right in the midst of the sinful world and yet in the middle of that place to be sanctified, to be set apart by the word of truth, by God's truth. Lot found himself living in a situation like this and it seems that like us he sometimes got it right and sometimes he got it really badly wrong. In verse 6 he rejects the men of Sodom's demand to hand over the angels for them to be raped. Look at verse 6. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Lot rightly stands up against the evil request and he names it as a wicked thing, as what it was and is. But then in the very next verse, he does something unbelievable. He says, look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. He gets it right with the angels, but he gets it outrageously and phenomenally wrong with his daughters. The New Testament is very gracious and generous to Lot. Look at what Peter says. God rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And that should be partly true of us, isn't it? Tormented in our soul by the right... That, that should be where we're at. We should be tormented by what we see. It, should, it, should, it should, We should hate seeing sin around us. But it seems that Lot was really rather like us Today, as we live in the midst of an utterly sinful world, some things he got right and some things he got wrong. He stood firm in some ways, and yet in other ways he sold out to the world around him and embraced the values and the the standards and the behavior of the culture he lived in. And this demonstrates the challenge that we face today. We need to learn to live with what I've called the sin tension. We need to learn to live with this thing called the sin tension. And it's this, if I'm shocked by sin then I'm not spending enough time with non-Christians. But if I'm not offended by sin, then I'm not spending enough time with God. Let me repeat that. If I'm shocked by sin, I'm not spending enough time with non-Christians. But if I'm not offended by sin, then I'm not spending enough time with God. Let's take, for instance, something that's very kind of surface level and in your face and, and we're aware of it all the time probably. Swearing and bad language. Now, and, and, and misusing God's name. Now, no Christian should use any form of bad language or ever misuse God's name. It's not, it's not, the Bible's quite clear on that. It's not clever, it's not cool, it's not funny. But the people that we work with and go to school with and the people in our wider families and our neighbours will use language that's sinful. They will misuse God's name all the time. They will use language which ought to offend us. So that when we hear, for instance, a person using the F word or misusing the name of Jesus if we are really shocked by that, then it probably demonstrates that we don't actually hear it very often. And that's probably because we've we've withdrawn from the world around us and we're probably not spending enough time with non-Christians, which is why we're not hearing that very often. However, when we do hear, for instance, the F word or the name of Jesus being misused, it should still offend us. And if it's not offending us, then there's a problem because it offends God. And if when we hear the F word or, or the name of Jesus misused, we, we don't bat an eyelid, even internally, if that doesn't kind of register with us at some level, then it probably shows we've drifted too far in the other direction. So instead of, of running away from the world, we've, we've actually embraced the world. It shows that we're probably not spending enough time with God. We've probably become desensitized to sin. And we've probably begun to embrace the world and its values and behavior. So if I'm shocked by sin, it's probably true, it may be true that I'm not spending enough time with non-Christians, that I've, I've withdrawn, I've run away from reality. But if I'm not offended by sin, then it probably means I'm not spending enough time with God. Now God rescued Lot as he promised Abraham. And he poured out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his wife and his daughters were the only righteous people that God uh, found, and, and as we see actually Lot's wife didn't really w- seem to want to leave it, it seems actually that when it says that she looked back that, she, that it probably means in the Hebrew that she didn't even leave really and so she got caught up in the disaster that came on the city and, and Lot's daughters were hardly example of godliness so that's a whole other story for another day Lot found himself as a man trying to, live in a, trying to live a godly life in the middle of an ungodly society and sometimes he got it right and sometimes he got it wrong much like us today something much like me, but for us it's so important that we stay engaged and connected to the world around us and to the people all around us, whilst at the same time doing all that we can to stay pure and live godly lives. And the main reason for this, apart from the fact that it's so important that we stay pure and godly for God's sake, for, for the, you know, for, uh, to bring pleasure to God, but the, but the main reason for this is that we've been put here to tell people that God is going to one day judge this world but that he's also provided an escape. So Sodom and Gomorrah act as a kind of picture, that there's a true thing, but it acts as a picture, a pointer, of an eternal reality that everybody will face. And we are here in this world, and part of our role of being here is to engage with our world and our culture and the people around us to make sure they know that there is coming a day when the Bible says God has appointed a man by which he would judge the world. But also that that man can be their saviour if they trust in him. Jude tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So we're meant to learn from this, and the world around us is meant to learn from this. God has promised to send his son once more to judge the living and the dead. And those who've rejected God in this life will face God's rejection and eternal punishment in the life to come. And this fact, like the the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't popular. People don't want to hear it. And as Christians, we, if we're honest, we don't really enjoy or want to tell non-Christians this message, do we? It's not something that you know, we're going to get excited about going out and doing. It's great to tell people about God's love and God's forgiveness, but God's love and forgiveness is only real and meaningful if people understand that there is also uh, an eternal punishment for sin. To use the word saved implies we're saved from something. To use the word forgiveness means there is a sin to be forgiven. Evangelism is the only word... Rick Warren says that both Christians and non-Christians don't like. (laughs) Neither of us enjoy it or like it. But we need to do it. I'm not very good at it. I don't find it easy to do this. But we've got to stay engaged with this world, trying to live this godly life so that we can tell people around us, we can pray for those around us, but not just pray for them, but actually engage with them. And we're not going to be, you know, ramming the the gospel down people's throats all the time. I I understand that. And as friendship evangelism and it's and it's long term and it's intentionality. But ultimately we need to get beyond having a friendship and we need to tell people that they need to repent so that they can be forgiven because that is the heart of the gospel. And we can have friends all our lives, but if we never get to that point where with that friend we actually tell them, Do you know what, you need to repent and you need to be forgiven. Jesus said these words, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Our task is to preach repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean shouting or you know, preaching from a place like this. Preaching is just declaring, and that might be over a coffee and a coffee break at work. It might be out with a friend or whatever. But preaching repentance is calling people to turn away from their sin and turn instead to embrace Jesus and live for him. Preaching forgiveness is telling people that their sin is, is offensive to God, but that Jesus died for their sins and that forgiveness is possible if they repent and trust in Jesus. Jesus is coming, write, write this down, Jesus is coming to judge and we need to preach repentance and forgiveness. Not popular, not something we want to do particularly, their words, repentance, that people, you know, difficult to, to explain. None of this is fashionable, none of this is popular, even in the church, sadly. But repentance and forgiveness are at the very heart of the gospel, the good news that we have to tell people. So God rescued a lot. God has rescued us from eternal punishment if today we've trusted in Jesus. If, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you've not turned away from your sin in, in whatever form that takes, then... I've got to be honest with you and blunt with you that you face God's eternal wrath. And I plead with you this morning to to turn away from that, to repent and turn instead to Jesus and receive the wonderful, amazing forgiveness and love and grace and mercy that he offers you. Because this is real. And you need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. And if you haven't been forgiven, if you've not repented, if you've not turned to Jesus, then please do that. If you want to know more about that, then do come and chat with me afterwards. Those of us who are in relationship with Jesus... We also need to be in relationship with lots of people who haven't trusted in Jesus. Have you got some non-Christian friends? If you haven't, you need to get some non-Christian friends. You need to hang out with them. And that's going to be awkward at times. It's going to be difficult. And there's lots of issues that we're going to have to think through. And as we do so, we need to stay close to God so that we don't compromise our identity and end up selling out. And as we do this, we need to warn those around us that like Sodom, one day God will judge this world through the man he has appointed, the Lord Jesus. But that also, in the person of the Lord Jesus, God has provided a saviour if those same people will turn from their sin and surrender their lives to him. So let's just take a few moments now and just close our eyes, bow our heads and pause and, and reflect and ask God to just be clear to us through the power of his Spirit this morning. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to each one of us? just to ask God just to, to pause and hear what God is saying to you what steps do you need to take as, as we've talked through this this morning is there is it repentance is it a sin some of the sins we looked at this morning that need to be repented of and turned away from Can I say this morning that if you are engaged in sexual sin if you are committing adultery, don't leave this building until you have repented of that and put that right with God. If you've embraced the world and sold out, then you need to come back and recenter your life on Jesus. Renew your mind. If you've run away from the world and maybe need to come back and, and intentionally re-engage with lost people, maybe right now God is just putting a face in your, in your mind or a name of, of, of a non-Christian that you need to go out with, spend time with and preach repentance and forgiveness to. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you are a God of righteousness, holiness and justice. Thank you that you hate sin. Thank you that there is righteousness and there is holiness and there is purity and justice and it's found in you. Thank you, Father, that you love us. You love every person in this world so much that you've provided a way of escape from your wrath, your righteous, right, holy wrath against our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were that way out, you were that one who stood in the gap and stood in the way and took and bore the wrath of a holy God against our sin. Help us to hate sin in our own lives, in the lives of others, but help us to love others and love you And help us to engage with a lost world. Help us to stay true to you and stay close to you and to renew our minds daily so that we might live pure lives and holy lives, be sanctified, be set apart for you. And as we do this, help us to lead lost people to the Saviour who loves them and who gave himself for them. Help us to do this, we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit.